Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast and on this week's show I am talking to uh, Jim Grubman who many of you may recognise from previous episodes of the show. Uh, If you haven't heard Jim speak before then you are in for a treat. He is a fantastic guest, a fantastic speaker um, and uh, there is quite a bit of thought-provoking conversation in today's episode just a point to note we're actually releasing this episode in November and the recording was done in July the reason being is it's been pretty busy since uh, I recorded this episode and so I've been a bit remiss in terms of doing things like editing and producing and all of those kind of things so apologies to Jim for taking so long in getting our conversation published. The conversation today centers around some of the statistics and myths and you know proverbs that are used to in my view very often scare families into trying to take action to avoid becoming a statistic and in particular Jim takes a look at one uh, study that centers around the so-called 70% rule. So we explore that And then we move on to ask how we can add more rigor to research. And Jim explains how he would uh, approach this. And I guess it's a rallying call for anyone out there listening who uh, wants to get involved. Please get in touch. Uh, Jim gives his contact details at the end or you can come via me uh, on the fanbizpodcast.com website or russ at familybusinesspartnership.com. So enough from me. I will now pass over to the interview with Jim. Enjoy. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am joined again by, um, dare I say, repeat offender or um, maybe not the best (laughs) phrase, uh, but uh, regular guest on the show, Jim Grubman. Jim, firstly, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Glad to be here, Russ. Always a pleasure to do a podcast with you. We are going to be talking about improving outcome research in family wealth advising today. But before we get into the kind of nub of the topic, It'd be great for anyone who's listening to the show that either hasn't come across our previous episodes or haven't come across the work that you've been doing. If you could just provide us with an intro to who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, I'm Dr. Jim Grubman and originally trained as a psychologist and sometimes uh, I'm called a family wealth psychologist. Um, I'm a family wealth consultant, family business consultant that's been working in this field uh, since the notorious dot-com era of the late 1990s. Um, after having spent the first part of my career in healthcare, 
and uh, I work with um, significantly wealthy families and family enterprises, um, predominantly North America, but I've also done work globally. Um, and I also uh, speak, write. Uh, I'm connected to the wonderful Ultra High Net Worth Institute, as you are, Russ, and um, uh, continue to do collaborations with um, Dennis Chaffee, who I've worked with for 20 years now. So a wide variety of things in the field of family wealth. Fantastic. And although we are recording this um, virtually, we uh, were fortunate enough to be together in the same place uh, as each other last week as we are recording uh, this at the wonderful PPI conference as well. And it was very good to be able to catch up face to face rather than via a Zoom screen or as we're using here, the, the podcast recording software we're using. So Yes, uh, we were at the Rendezvous in Denver, Colorado, and had a great week with a lot of great speakers and sessions. Uh, and it was just fun to like, like sit next to you and make snide comments here and there and a joke and uh, <laughs> just enjoy being together. Absolutely. Um, as I said at the outset, we're looking at improving outcome research in family wealth advising. This kind of speaks back to, a, to part of what we were discussing in the episode we recorded on um, firstly Wealth 3.0, but also the Family Wealth Integration episode that we recorded with Tom McCullough around the usefulness of some of the statistics that are used. And we talked about the ward study and the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves uh, kind of rhetoric and, and myth that's utilized. Um, you've been doing some work on on kind of adding some more um, detail to some of the uh, statistics and, and myths that are, are utilized out there. Could you kind of, again, give us a feel for what you've done and, and before we move on to how we can improve um, outcomes, let, let's have a look at where we are currently. Sure. Um, what we talked about in articles on Wealth 3.0 and uh, discussion about the roots of the field and what we tell clients and other advisors, there sort of have been three legs of the stool that always have been talked about as proofs for why we know, quote, unquote, um, and I will resist the temptation to do air quotes in a podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, but basically, <laughs> um, there's always been three things which were recited together. One was the shirt sleeve to shirt sleeves and three generations proverb. Uh, the second would be the study by John Ward and Associates in a, discussed in a book in 1987 in which he um, looked at family businesses to determine how much they lasted across generations. And then the third leg of the stool has been the Williams and Presser material that, number one, would always cite what they called the 70% rule. Um, and once again, Russ, I will resist air quotes on that. Um, uh, and as well as their own research, uh, looking at the causes or factors that they were curious about as to why supposedly 70% of wealth transitions failed. Um, in recent years, there have been more writings 
looking skeptically at shirt sleeves and at uh, certainly at the Ward study. In fact, um, more than 10 years ago, uh, John Ward himself would always said that it went way beyond what the study actually showed, how people interpreted it. And he was very solid and cautious about the findings. Um, but he would say, or the study would be quoted as saying um, that uh, 30% of family businesses only survive through the second generation, 13, I think, percent through the third, 3% make it into the fourth. And so those were always cited as uh, family businesses just simply don't succeed. The problem was, um, as information came forward indicating we need to move on from those, no one ever really looked at the Williams and Presser allegation that 70% of wealth transfers fail, uh, which was also, again, the basis for them trying to figure out why. Um, and so I began to be interested, what really is the foundation for what is almost universally repeated, uh, uh, just about every journalist who gets an assignment from their editor uh, goes to the internet, Google's family business, and up pops the saying that 70% of wealth transitions fail. So I decided to take a deep dive into it, and I found some very interesting things. Fantastic. And I... Um, know that we, we've obviously mentioned a little bit around things like shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. And there's an article that um, Rob and Josh from um, Banyan Global have written that highlights, again, the um, whether they believe that's to, to, to be true or not and kind of deep and busts that myth, uh, if you like, around shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. So I'll, I'll link that up in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in um, reading that, they can go off and, and find that. Um You've specifically written a paper and some articles around the kind of process that you went through in, in trying to understand the validity of the 70% rule. Um, and it's I've, I've read it and it's kind of a, an intertwining of, um, sort of various different sources that tend to lead back to a broadly similar source. Could you kind of explain um, where your research on this has taken you and... Um, that then we can start looking at, you know, what we can be doing going forward to try and um, define what current statistics might look like. Well, uh, starting, oh, I think over two years ago, but particularly accelerating the last year, um, I pretty much pursued almost virtually everything that had been written um, by Roy Williams and Vic Presser and their associates I looked at the most recent book um, of Roy Williams and Amy Castoro, Bridging Generations, all the way back to their very famous book, Preparing Heirs, in 2003, I think. Uh, and um, I, I just got my hands on whatever I possibly could. Turned out that there were several books that Roy had written in the 1990s of a similar nature. There have been many articles uh, and uh, uh, in preparing heirs, which is what most people know, they say uh, in the beginning that there is this presumably global rule of what is the failure rate of family transitions across generations. 
and they talk it as universal. There are multiple sources, um, and they say, uh, you know, that uh, essentially family wealth does not last very well or very easily, at least through the second generation, and often gets worse beyond that. So I tracked down um, pursuing every reference, every citation. I went back to the original sources, which actually I had to order some things that were out of print, uh, find books on the internet. Um, I discovered uh, one of the problems was there was never really any detailed description of either their own research or um, where they got that 70% rule from in any detailed way. Uh, and I discovered there was an article that was written in 1997 in the Journal of Business Ventures that laid out the exact research protocol, talked about the, demogra- uh, the um, specifics. Um, and so I, I really tracked everything I possibly could. And what I discovered was that basically, despite multiple references going here, there, and everywhere, everything could be traced back to what you and I discussed of that John Ward 1987 study that I just made reference to. Um, all they did was they took this study of uh, family business transitions, um, which was very limited in nature. I uh, studied 200 family businesses uh, in Indiana, I believe. Um, uh, very limited study. And that basically all Williams and Presser did was invert the statistic. Instead of saying 30% survived through the second generation, they said 70% fail. There was nothing more. Um, Also, they made the leap from family business transition to family wealth transition. Uh, And in the article, I talk about the demographics of, you know, um, how they describe whether it was just wealth or business and everything. But ultimately, looking at everything, there were a lot of indirect references to you know, only a third of family businesses survive in the second generation, which was written around the same time as the Ward study. Um, some other general comments by early family business consultants, but there really was nothing else of any substance or validity beyond the Ward 1987 study. And that was um, pretty remarkable to find. Yeah. And my, my understanding of the board study as well is that, and we'll, we'll dig into this a bit later on as well, uh, is if, say, a family enterprise doesn't transition from G2 to G3, but is sold as a big liquidity event, and then that wealth is utilized to help everybody live a fantastic, fulfilled life and do whatever they want to do, under the sort of... Um, statistical approach of the ward study that would be deemed as a air quotes failure because the business entity itself didn't continue on to future generations but the family and this is a fictional family so we can't ask them but but the family in that situation might feel that that's an entirely successful outcome because they've been able to create a liquidity event that allows people to do what they want to do rather than focus on a single 
legal entity that we refer to as a business. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, there were a lot of limitations in the Ward study. Uh, all they did was they looked at family businesses that existed in 1924, and then they looked at the records to see if those businesses still existed in 1984. Um, and if they did, they consider that success. And if they didn't, if it disappeared, they consider it, well, uh, again, Ward was actually more responsible than others took it the wrong way. But uh, yes, uh, the research protocol was not very good. Taking it a step further, um, uh, when Williams and Presser uh, discussed their own criteria for success or failure, for example, in the book Bridging Generations, published most recently, they talk about the criteria of success, and they have it's like two paragraphs worth of detailed descriptions that says they considered a success if the family stayed together, was cohesive, if the assets were still under family control, if they had harmony, all sorts of stuff. And under a research protocol that, you know, would be uh, strict, if a family didn't meet all the criteria that they stated for success, then that would be considered a failure. And that's just not the way that life works. And um, it's it's kind of shaky in terms of uh, a binary measure of success or failure. Uh, and as you and I have had conversations, um, that uh, I think we've moved beyond a rather simplistic approach like that um, to understanding something a little in more depth. Yeah, it reminds me of um, an early podcast episode um, I did with Greg McCann, where we were looking at how to define success and redefining success. And I think that's such an important element and such an important conversation with families is rather than, again, being defined by what a research study may state as success, how about you define your own success and we work towards that uh, as a potential outcome but before we go a bit more into detail on on su success perhaps I, i'm also reminded uh, within the war study is of the time frame that the study was conducted over and with regards specifically to the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves there's various connotations that you can find across different cultures of the same kind of myth or or saying that I believe dates back to, in some cases, sort of the 1500s. And again, if you look at the world then and the world now, even in the last 20 years, how so very, very different everything is. I think what we're also highlighting at that is that there hasn't been a really in-depth study on what these statistics may be today. And that's part of, I think, what we're saying in terms of how we can help move the field forward is to start looking at those um, studies in, in more recent terms rather than, again, relying on sort of 16th century folklore and, and studies that be began in the, the early 1900s. Absolutely, Russ. Uh, part of what we're talking about is, you know, I think for everyone who works with uh, the wealthy, the idea that wealth is difficult to sustain and families struggle across generations certainly is not uh, to be disputed in total. And that, um, it, realistically, it is difficult for families 
to sustain some things for a variety of reasons. The issue, though, is this false narrative and idea that somehow we know that not only do we know, and this is where everybody starts to fall back on, did I tell you about how there's this saying in every culture around the world? But also uh, in America, we love data. We love statistics, whether or not they're well-founded. And so um, putting numbers to it somehow has always enhanced its validity. And I think that's what um, Wealth 3.0 and what I and some colleagues are trying to do, which is to unwind this idea that we know we actually have data on it, the data are solid, uh, and um, that we can tell this to clients and other advisors um, as truths when in actuality, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure how I want to say it, but sort of, um, uh, there's not a lot of solid grounding in the numbers that are bandied about. And it's time that we actually let those go because we're doing damage to families when we tell them a story that actually may not be true. Mm-hmm. And again, um, Josh and Rob have been on the show and, and we very briefly mentioned that the third generation air quotes rule um, and the number of, um, so Josh was telling us a story about the number of people who come to him in the class he runs at a business school to say, I'm the dreaded third generation, I'm the one that's going to mess this up. And so we can see that that those statistics and sayings are making their way to families because in the absence of anything else, and, and we've spoken about this, and this is just as a general comment, not, not specific to uh, any particular study, but those types of statistics and rules and that they are effectively fear marketing to prompt action. And if there's positive outcomes from that action, then some might argue that's a good thing. But what we're saying in terms of Wealth 3.0 is we don't need to use the negative. We don't need to use fear in order to promote this. We can do it via a lens of positivity and do it through a lens of, as we said earlier, what's your definition of success and how do we help you get to that? And again, I think that's what we're saying in terms of what we can be doing going forward is let's look at creating research. Let's look at ways in which we can identify these challenges based on actual real-time statistics for now. Is that right? Yes, that is right. That, you know, it's time that we actually begin to create uh, an idea of what does happen to families, but in a much more nuanced, uh, rigorous sort of way that uh, looks at modern research protocol, modern methods, solid procedure and research design, um, we actually do need to know what happens, but uh, we need to know in a way that is much more well-grounded than these uh, studies from the past. And I'm reminded as well of your, um, when in your introduction, your uh, history in, in the medical field. And I just wonder how often research is um, sort of re-looked at uh, in terms of sort of the worlds of medicine, because I think we can see in terms of our advances from say early nineteenth century compared to where we are now that there's more much more of an attitude towards let's constantly strive to test and test and test these new um, research boundaries rather than relying on you know if we were all relying on um, medicine from the fifteen hundreds as an example, then 
um, there'd be a it'd be a pretty sorry state. And that's why I see this very much as embedded in a wealth 3.0 approach, which uh, again is founded on rigor um, and solid action and practice. Uh, you're you're right that um, even if a study in the 1990s shows um, in some ways, for example, that trust and communication are important factors. Um, it's not the be all and end all that we need to, first of all, the study's never been replicated like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so the question is, if anybody else did the research, would they find the same thing? We have no uh, evidence of that. In addition, there may be new information there may be uh, factors which were not considered in the study. Somebody does it looking in uh, a better way, perhaps. Um, for example, in the past couple of decades, one of the things that's come forward is that even more than things like communication and building trust in families for family businesses, the role of doing good strategic planning in the business actually may be more important for the business longevity um, and that really good solid strategic planning may be uh, much more top of mind. I would also here take us back to what I said, which is Williams and Presser made a leap that we have to be very careful about. What happens to family businesses is not necessarily the same as what happens to family wealth. And those, I think, uh, often have been confused. And even in the research protocol of the Williams and Presser original study, um, there was, I believe, a quarter or a third of um, the people in the study who did not have a family business. They were just managing family wealth. And so confounding what happens to family business versus what happens to wealth and families across generation um, is another research confound that we need to tease apart. And so if we were to imagine we had a blank piece of paper and, and we could go about designing something moving forward that that allows us to tick the boxes that we want to tick in, in terms of the rigor and the, the type of research that will help move the um, family wealth and family business advisory world forward. And I, I say that in essence, that helps family wealth and family businesses. So it's not just about us who, who act in the, the kind of practitioner space. It's, it is helping a much broader market of people as well. But if, if we wanted to design that from scratch, how do we go about doing that? Well, uh, in a commentary article in the FFI practitioner that I wrote as a companion article to the long, detailed, very comprehensive article in the uh, International Family Offices Journal for um, June of 2022, uh, I specifically discuss uh, about five or six major points of what better research might look like. So maybe we can go through that. Um, one of the points is exactly what we talked about, which is um, we needed to understand, uh, although family business um, is probably the major driver of the creation of family wealth at a significant level, 
there are many other drivers of family wealth. There are high-earning professionals. Um, there are people who have start off with significant settlements and grow the wealth, investment success. Um, and so, number one, when we're doing research in this field, we need to really identify the nature of the cohort. What is the source of their wealth? Because it very well may be that different sources of wealth lead to different outcomes. We don't know that. We've been throwing them all in the same bucket. Um, I think we need to keep them uh, separate and understood because longevity with one type of wealth creation may be different than some other types. So not throwing it all together, family wealth equals family enterprise would be a good place for us to start. Uh-huh. Yeah, completely agree on that. Uh, the second point I make is something that has never been done. All the studies about what happens with family wealth or family business are always retrospective. Um, you take a point in time and then look back. The reality is to do longevity studies, you need to have longitudinal research. You need to start with a particular cohort and follow them across time. Uh, in order to track what happens in real time, taking measures at different points. Probably one of the most uh, famous longitudinal studies that many people are aware of is the Framingham study in the U.S. where Harvard looked at um, some Harvard uh, students and alumni, and they followed them over 40, 50 years to find out uh, what were cardiovascular risk factors, health factors, and over time, because they kept following the same cohort, they were able to broaden and study these people uh, in great depth. In order to answer long-term questions, you need long-term research. And we've never mm -hmm. done that as a field. So uh, we need to secure the funding and have really good, robust research design um, to be able to track uh, the, the various cohorts that are part of the study over decades. And with that, we may be able to actually get some answers on what happens with family wealth over decades. Yeah, absolutely. And that's quite a, a tricky thing to secure. I know um, I'm talking from personal experience. You know the work that me and, and Jamie Weiner have done in, in terms of the research yes. project that, that we've done. And we were fortunate enough to speak to the people we spoke with over the course of five years and on a couple of occasions, our dream is for that to become something that is more longitudinal. But the challenges that you come up against are things like funding and finding the research team to de design the research in the appropriate way. So although we're saying this is how we would design things going forward, there are still barriers in terms of, of doing this. But but I guess what, what we're saying is let's let's work together in terms of um, the, the benefit I had from, from being in a practitioner and research team was huge because I'm sure the researchers won't mind me saying they operate in a different language almost in yes. terms of the technical aspect of what they do. So we were able to translate that into um, kind of everyday talk, if you like, it in the work that yes. we've done. But, but that kind of practitioner research-led um, model is hugely beneficial because it allows that interaction between the two um, as well. And uh, I guess in terms of what we're looking here um, at moving forward, 
um, as practitioners, we would benefit hugely from this. So let, let's get involved. Well, Russ, what I can tell you the good news is, is that since these articles have been published, um, some several major institutions and firms have approached me and said, okay, so actually, what would it take to do this longitudinal research? Um, and cool. uh, I'm just, uh, including I had conversations at the PPI rendezvous last week and whatever, and that it very well may be that um, uh, we're going to be able to put together a consortium with several funders that uh, begins to create research that's going to have a significant impact on this field for decades to come. That's probably the most exciting thing that has come of this. Yeah, uh, that sounds fantastic and, and look forward to hearing more on that. Um, so we've covered t two of the elements. So we've got uh, the research objectives must be clearly defined and, and separate the between family business and, and family wealth. And that in order to get valid um, longevity studies, we need longitudinal research. Um, what else do we think is needed in order to help uh, improve um, research in family wealth? And family Several business. things. Sure. Um, one is something that you touched on, which is what are the outcome measures? In 1987 and 1997, um, simplistic ideas of, well, who succeeds and who fails were part of the understanding of a newly developing field. We are much farther along than that. And what I describe in the FFI article, and actually the um, other one too, is we may actually need to move away from a binary up or down um, measure to something that looks much more at patterns. What are the patterns that occur across generations? Because it may very well be that there are different patterns, for example, at different levels of wealth. If you have $12 million, your pattern of what happens over time should not be lumped in with what happens to wealth in the $100 million range or in the $2 billion range. Um, and so we have a much more sophisticated idea that market segments, levels, types of wealth, origin of wealth may all influence the outcome. And so on uh, the third emphasis is we need to move away from a very simple idea of, you know, success or failure, which of course, uh, you know, debunks the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves because it basically says there's only one outcome. Uh, you go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. Um, and I think that we need uh, a much finer grained understanding of the long-term patterns of wealth over generations. Completely agree. And I think that's possibly another podcast that we could um, have just on that topic alone in terms of um, defining success. Yes. And I, I think the, um, the field itself, if you look back over the last 30, 40 years, has really come to an understanding that uh, basically the wealthy, you know, rich people cannot all be lumped into one cohort as some homogeneous population often that has some usually really bad stereotype characteristics. So I think um, uh, we've come a long way in understanding uh, subgroups among the wealthy. And mm -hmm. I think that's where the research really needs to go for outcome and longevity research as well. Agreed. 
a couple other things. Um, we need really good research design, and I think that we're much farther along now than we were back in the early days of the development of the field. Um, keeping out bias in uh, design, making sure that measures are well standardized, just basically good research protocol has come a long way. And so the procedures for the research uh, need to be enhanced. And then finally, um, we need to look at uh, the wealthy themselves. Uh, I've already touched on one aspect, which is, you know, we need to look at segments of the wealthy. What happens at the high net worth level may not be the same as at the ultra high net worth level. And so um, having a more finely grained approach uh, is something that needs to be part of the new research. Uh, but the last point I think we have to take a moment on, which is the demographics. Um, uh, when in, in the 1970s to 1990s, when the original research was being done, according to Williamson Presser and then later with Ward, um, they were looking at what happened by G2, perhaps G3. And if you think for a moment, that means that Generation 1, dates back to the late 1880s to early 1900s. We're talking about a demographic for the statistics that are bandied about now. A demographic back then that was predominantly white, male-led, uh, Christian, heterosexual, traditional family. I mean, um, who became wealthy was a very particular uh, type of cohort. That is very different than today's diverse, global, less traditional, blended family, female-led, um, people of color growing more and more. Um, we need to have the demographics much more represented of who is wealthy now uh, rather than rely on statistics and studies that relate to a demographic that actually in many ways is uh, gone by. Yeah, uh, again, completely agree uh, on that. And it, again, it reminds me of the comment I made earlier around the sort of m medical research being uh, very limited, very restricted over time. And as medicine advances and as science advances, they're able to, to introduce a much broader, diverse range to those types of research studies and take the understanding from one study and place it into part of the context for the next study to almost test that side of it. And they, they kind of build on um, each other. And, and we've seen the, the work that things like the vaccine for um, COVID can do, the impact that that can have as a result of many, yes. many years worth of accumulated research, rather than basing everything on, say, research from the 1500s. So, so that's a right. real-time example of that kind of progression through research. And I guess it sort of um, in conclusion, bringing the research to that standard, that the kind of um, collaborative approach that we've discussed, the kind of broader um, and yet more specific kind of demographic side of things, and, and that that's all going to lead to a progression for the field, but also the aim ide ideally, I guess, is better outcomes for families. And just on that, back to the success point is in my view that should be defined by the families not defined by people going let's let us stop you becoming a statistic and for example 
you, this business has to continue through to the next generation in order for it to be successful, even if that makes you entirely miserable. Well, what you're talking about is, in some ways, the outcome measures that might be done in a research study should include self-assessment. The families should be asked, um, and, and again, not binary, you know, did you succeed or did you fail? But um, possibly what's called a Likert scale, like from zero or one to six, uh, the degree uh-huh. to which um, the wealth still continues to support the family. They might look at, you know, what are the areas in which uh, this has benefited you? What are the areas in which you now are struggling? Um, and the family's self-assessment should be a very important part of um, the protocol. Yeah, completely agree. Um Jim, as always, it has been a fantastic conversation. Um, Please tell our audience how they can find out more about uh, the articles and uh, yourself as well. Sure. Um, The uh, comprehensive article going into depth about the Williams Impressor material was in the June 2022 issue of the International Family Offices Journal, a great journal um, uh, that you can obtain through Globe Law and Business. Um, a copy of that article is also posted on the homepage of my website, jamesgrubman.com. Uh, the FFI practitioner article talking specifically about uh, recommendations for good research now going forward can be obtained on the FFI practitioner website. Um, and actually, I may be posting a copy of that on my homepage as well um, with the other companion article. It may already be there. Um, and feel free, again, at any time to email me um, through my website. There's a contact form or jim at jamesgrubman.com. And I would love to hear comments, thoughts. Um, you know, we might end on, on a note uh, I posted on LinkedIn when these two articles came out and it basically blew up our little corner of the internet um, (laughs) in a a big way. I think it's had 8,000 views and a hundred and something reactions and comments. It's, it's really gone viral. And so um, you can also go to LinkedIn and see the conversation about this there, which was overwhelmingly supportive uh, for the new information. Fantastic. And what we will do is provide links to all of the resources you mentioned there in the show notes. Um, But for now, Jim, uh, until your next uh, appearance on the show, um, thank you very much for your uh, expertise and insights. And uh, I look forward to catching up soon. I look forward to our next one as well. It's always great talking with you, Russ, and uh, great that you're doing this for the audience. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.